Major Lindsay in Africa presents Between the Legal Lines, a podcast focused on leading women lawyers who have pushed beyond the boundaries and found success. Welcome to Between the Legal Lines. My name is Andrea Bricka, and I am your host today. This podcast is a series of monthly interviews where we explore how women who happen to also be both executives and lawyers navigate the boundaries placed upon them due to their roles and their demographic. These women have found success despite those sometimes very narrowly drawn lines that govern what is acceptable and what is not. And each month we will hear a new story from a different woman about what that's like. Joining me today is Katie Lever. Katie has served as Chief Legal Officer or General Counsel to some of the gaming industry's most influential operators and suppliers. She is also a board member and audit chair to the Bank of George, one of the highest rated community banks in the country. Welcome, Katie. Hi, um, thank you very much for having me. It's such a pleasure. My career um, has actually been really based, luckily, around doing some of these really kind of unique and more uh, interesting developmental projects of joining companies where there's either been a new project, a new initiative, integration, uh, something where it's not just been run-of-the-mill, everyday legal services. So in this project, we are about two years away from opening what is going to be, uh, I'm sure, just an incredible project. My last role, I was general counsel and executive vice president at Bahamar in Nassau, the Bahamas. And that property had a pretty storied past. Um, it had been under development for many, many years, and it had been touched by many, many hands before going bankrupt. Uh, the ownership that I worked for purchased it out of bankruptcy and selected a team of executives from around the country and, in fact, around the world to come down and assist them with completing construction and opening the property uh, in pretty interesting circumstances. And we were very successful in getting the property opened in a very limited amount of time. We had about six months to get some pretty significant assets open. Uh, we were just under 3,000 rooms. We had a world-class Jack Nicholas golf course, a convention center, some of those beautiful beach in the Bahamas you could ever imagine, uh, as well as about 21 f and uh, facilities as well. Uh, and of course, a 150,000 square foot casino. Um, so that was, a challenge and what made it in some ways even more challenging and in some ways uh, less challenging and more appealing was that there are really very few of us working on this project. So my role as general counsel was of course doing all of the legal work. And as a gaming lawyer, my role was doing the regulatory and the compliance work, which involved getting the licenses and getting the approvals and getting the permissions. But then my role as an executive was really to do anything that was required. And that meant that one day, you know, I could be chasing down something that might be needed in order to ensure 
that we had no appropriate cash storage on the golf course. And the next day, figuring out how to get a, a bank relationship so that we could get the casino open in time. Um, there is, unlike when you are um, working at a law firm as a lawyer, as a general counsel, and as an executive, your role is so much more expanded. And then in an environment like that one, where it is a get it done environment, and there are so few people working on a project, uh, it truly does just become you do it all and you do whatever is needed. I and mean, we certainly, all of us, every executive working on that project, we did everything that we could in order to get that property open. And we did. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful property. It's an award-winning property. Um, and it, it's one, it's a project that I'm immensely proud that I was able to work on because it did have such a storied past and so many tried to get it open and we were the lucky ones who really did get it open. Uh, prior to that, I went through a series of transactions where I got to really flex my m and muscles. So you've had this career that brought you to, you know, the pinnacle of the legal profession and GC of such a large company, GC of these great resorts. Was there any one person in particular that was very helpful in your career? Yeah, to me, that's such an interesting question. Um, I believe in both mentors and in advocates, and I think it's really important for us to have both. Uh, there are many people who I have looked at over my career to provide me with advice and who have been true mentors. Those same people haven't necessarily been my advocates. Um, and my advocates certainly haven't necessarily been my mentors. So I've had people who have been and are to this day the people that I go to with my problems and my injuries and the people that are when I'm not quite sure what to do, I go to and I return to time and time again. Uh, to help me walk through issues. There are some people that I go to when I'm actually not sure about a legal issue, and I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing, because uh, doing the right thing is the most important thing. We have nothing more important than our personal reputations, and we have to get it right. There are other people who have been my true and strong and steadfast advocate. And I have jobs because of these advocates. Because it's one thing to call up somebody and say, I want you to hire me. But it's something else altogether to have somebody else call someone up and say, you need to hire her. And those advocates are career shaping and career forming. And I do have a couple of people who have been part of my career for about 20 years, which is when I moved to the US after practicing in Canada for about seven years, who have been completely formative in my career um, for that entire period of time who are still completely formative in my career, um, who I, I speak to on an incredibly regular basis. Uh, 
who I can say with certainty I would not have the career I have today without them advocating for me. And it doesn't mean that they are out there beating a drum on my behalf, but steadily and regularly over and over, they have made a difference in the course of my career. Are those advocates somebody that you picked or they kind of came to you? Can you talk about that a little bit for others to understand how you find those advocates? Yeah, so uh, I think it's a little bit of both. And there's, of course, there's, there's luck, there's magic, there's connection, you know, you, I, uh, there's, there's just a whole bunch of synergy, I think, that goes into these things. So one of my, one of my advocates is a gentleman that I work for, he was um, the founding partner and senior partner of a law firm that I worked for in my early days. Um, and he has and always has been just extremely good to and for me. Um, and that was one where I worked with him. Um, we worked well together. I, you know, I have to say this with a certain amount of guile, but clearly he liked the work I did because he has evermore continued to recommend me as my role as general counsel uh, to people. Um, and that has served my career enormously well. So I didn't pick him, he picked me. But that was as a result of my doing my very best work, my very hardest work, my always trying to do right by him when I work for him. Um, I, you know, have a really strong belief that you have, no matter the role, no matter the time, you have to do well, you have to do your best. Uh, whether you love it or hate it, I happen to love working for him, but I would have worked just as hard if I had hated working for him. And you never know where that's going to take you. You never know who you're, who you're impressing no matter what. Another one of my advocates uh, was actually in his very, very, very first iteration. He was my client. He was one of my very first clients. Uh, and he could have just as easily been a one-and-done client. He could have been someone that I did, that I wrote an opinion for, and I could have never seen again. But it turned out that he was someone that I, I had as a client, and then I had him as a return client, then we were in a professional organization together, then through that professional organization, he helped elevate me. And then when he was going into a role as CEO, he tapped me to be his general counsel. And, and he continued in his career as he went from a fairly young, unformed executive to be a very significant player in our industry. He continued to tap me and bring me up with him and as he continued to move through the industry, he continued to think of me for roles and think of me for, me for positions and to recommend me for, to people. And when I needed someone to advocate for me, he did that with an enormous amount of generosity. 
So I didn't pick them. I would say they picked me, but they picked me because I put myself in a position to be picked. Um, and that was by for everybody I worked for and with doing my very hardest work, doing my very best work. None of this comes easily. Um, none of this comes because you coast. Uh, you know, I, I somewhat ironically, you know, I just had this conversation with my 20-year-old niece today, completely unrelated to the practice of law, but related to um, how you work and where you work, that you never know who's watching when you work, which means that you always have to start how you finish and you always have to finish how you start. And it doesn't matter how much you like or hate who you're working for, you have to do your everything because it matters. Just turning a little bit from the people you worked with and advocated for you, but to yourself and your work, if anything, do you wish you were freer to do and say at work? And if you, if there are things that you can't do and say, why can't you? So I think when I was younger, uh, I definitely felt just more restricted. I would say at this point in my career, I feel a lot less restriction. Uh, and I do firmly believe that we do our best work when we are more authentic. That is a word that gets bandied around so much that it's probably at risk of losing some meaning. Uh, but I really mean that word in its true itself. So, you know, if you are comfortable dressing in a certain way or looking a certain way, that comfort is going to be reflected in your work product. So, uh, you know, when I was a very young, young, young lawyer, uh, we all had to wear hoser tights, which um, for me is a particular version of hell, and I just rebelled against that because I wasn't going to do my best work in completely uncomfortable every day in somebody's version of what was appropriate. Um, and if you kind of transform that same theory into now, where we don't have those same restrictions, but we transform that again, and, and it's a bit superficial, but it works, if you transform that into today, you know, if wearing jeans and sweaters and flats is your jam and that's how you're comfortable, find a way to make that work for you within the architecture of your work environment. If wearing stilettos and nice dresses and sequins is your jam and it's certainly mine, find a way to make that work within the architecture of your work environment. Because if you are comfortable, however you find that comfort, you are going to do your best you. So I take that theory, that sort of superficial one, and I push it a little bit further into you need to find that comfort 
and what makes you comfortable and what makes you authentic in everything you do. Now, that doesn't mean speaking up and shouting out at every meeting because you feel it necessary. But there are times when it is appropriate and there are times when it's necessary. We've seen that in what's going on with the Me Too generation. There are some things where you just don't put up with it. Um, I advocate that always, and there's always a path. Um, there are other things where I think that as women, we are able to have a unique voice at the table, no matter whether there's one of us, five of us, or 20 of us, we are able to probably bring something to the table in a unique voice, and we have to find our own voice and our own way to speak. Um, and it may be a little unique, it may be a lot unique, you may think it's not unique at all, but I think that there was a greater risk, certainly for me when I was younger, of not speaking up at all. And I've certainly found my own style of speaking up. I'm not aggressive, I'm not loud, but I'm certainly going to get my point across. And I found my own way of doing that. And I think it's very important uh, for anybody, woman or man, find their own way of getting their point across. And when I say table, I, I do mean table, but I also mean any means of communication. Um, because the validity of our opinions is something that's very important for our success. And that is actually something I think really does reach through for women. There are many studies that are there about the amount of time women take up in meetings, the amount of talking women do in meetings, and time and time again, those studies will show that women take up less time and women talk. So we have to find a way to talk. And there are studies that show that if there are two women, the best thing that women can do is women can speak with each other. So one woman says something and the other woman echoes it and repeats this so that the voice of women is is heard in a more fluid manner. It's one way of getting a voice across. I have found my own style of getting a voice across, which I didn't used to have because of of, of nerves, because of um, not feeling as though my point of view is as valid as senior men, but now I frankly don't care. And it's, you have to get to a certain age, I think, not to care, to try to bring up point to this. I think the most important thing that any of us can do, young or old, because I obviously yeah, the not caring part, I think, comes with age. I think the most important thing you can do is to try to find how we speak authentically. And again, it's a tough word to use. But how we speak authentically and stick to that. Try not to conform. Try not to take on someone else's shape. Don't yell if it's not your style. I'm not going to advocate yelling anyway, but don't yell if it's not your style. Um, try to find a way to have your voice heard. It's a tough 
place to be at times, but it's that is a very important thing to do is to stick to one consistent style and let that be your style. Consistency and authenticity in that approach is to me the way that you excel um, and that you, you succeed in having people really hear you. So you touched upon this in what you were just saying, but what has been stronger, the restraints you've placed upon yourself or the restrictions placed upon you by other people? And has that changed over time, I think is what part of what you're saying. I think it started out as probably the restrictions I placed upon myself, but it was certainly coupled by the restrictions other placed on me. And I'm not sure when or even if it flipped. Um, keep in mind that when I became executive vice president of three different publicly traded companies, I was the first female executive vice president of all three of those publicly traded companies. And that was in the 2000s. So this was not that long ago. Um, so every single one of these organizations had to learn how to deal with a female vice president, a female executive vice president. None of these organizations knew what to do with me. Um, and there were a lot of battles that had to be organically fought from something as simple as all of the guys going for lunch every day and talking about work and not thinking to include me to the types of conversations that would sometimes be had, uh, they were just flat out inappropriate. Um, to invalidating what I was doing at the table because I was a woman. Um, so those external restrictions and the battles that had to be fought, even to get those titles, because a woman had never had them, so why would a woman have them now? Um, those external battles were hard and tough and difficult. And then these companies were public, so then there's bankers, and, you know, it's getting better now, but there's certainly other times where you're just dealing again with a bunch of guys. And there are conversations that when you get a bunch of guys together, a bunch of guys are going to have. Um, so those external realities had to be fought every single day. And I like to think of it as education. Um, so, you know, not our perspective, I guess, maybe, but I like to think of what my role was, was education. I was teaching a lot of people how to deal with someone like me, a woman, an executive, um, a lawyer, someone that they should not be messing with, and 
and they all were students that were taking a very deep, fast crash course. And they all learned, to be sure. And the next woman that came along didn't have to do quite so much educating. Um, I also placed a lot of restrictions on myself because um, I had a desire for success and for achievement. And so I, I second-guessed myself and I third-guessed myself and I constantly worried about whether or not I was making the right decisions and how people would view choices that I was making. And I think that any successful person does that. And I think that we as women are far more likely to do that. I think that women spend so much time doubting and second-guessing and doing all of that behavior. And, and I don't think it's necessarily good or bad. It just is. It's part of our, you know, how some of us are, are made and how some of us achieve success is that, that behavior. Um, I think the sooner, however, we get past some of the external restrictions that uh, are placed upon us and women in the marketplace, the better. Because we're hard enough on ourselves, we don't need um, the societal difficulties as well. What advice would you offer to other ambitious women about workplace behavior? This one is so difficult um, because there's so there are so many examples of workplace behavior where the only advice that you can give is report early, report fast, and report often. And that bucket of workplace behavior is its own bucket. It's got its own set of advice, and there's only one, uh, only one correct response, period, full stop, without qualification. So put that set of behavior in its own bucket and understand that that, that, is, that is it. Um, so then there's the, there's the rest of workplace behavior of, you know, women not getting invited to meetings that matter, women not being given enough opportunities, women not necessarily getting some assignments, um, women not being given enough seats at the table, the things we talk about when we talk about broken lungs. So, we spend so much time, I think, talking about the glass ceiling, you know, and I'm an example of breaking through the glass ceiling. You know, that's an accomplishment I'm immensely proud of, but there are only so many glass ceilings that we get to break through because those are a select few jobs at the very top. What's more important, or at least equally as important, is all of the women that are looking to come up through management and continue to excel and achieve. And there are way, way more of those women than there are women looking to make the ultimate breakthrough of that glass ceiling. So we talk about the, the, the 
climb up the ladder and the broken rungs of those ladder, women that are trying to take one more step up that ladder and can't. And that's because they're not getting the, the right assignment or they're not getting invited to the right meetings or they don't have an advocate. And that is where I would say how important it is to join professional organizations to find a mentor because mentors can turn into advocates to connect with people within your organization to ask sometimes the simplest solution is to ask for it um, I think that we and not again to oversimplify women and not to genderize us too much, but I think that we way too often um, don't want to ask for things because we feel that somehow it's offensive to ask or it's not our place to ask or we don't want to, we don't want to impose to ask. And none of those things are true. What's the worst thing that can happen if you ask for something? You're going to get told no. Um, so ask for it, ask for the role, ask for the raise, ask for the assignment, ask to be invited to the meeting, but ask for it. Uh, because the way up that ladder, the way to repair those rings, the way to keep excelling is to climb up. Uh, and I think that we, we as women, and there's, there's Mackenzie does some fantastic studies about this. You can find them on the internet. The Mackenzie studies have been going on for over five years. So there's terrific empirical knowledge about this. But um, we as women, we do stuff differently. And the doing stuff differently is one of the greatest things we have to offer the workplace. But it also can hold us back. Um, so we have to, at times, make sure that, that that what makes us different doesn't damage our careers. So think about how to get through and up and over and using the power of group, which is one of the things that women are amazing at, using the power of the group to excel. Uh, and to keep rising up and to not stay at the same level uh, because that is both our biggest failing and our biggest opportunity to achieve. This has been Between the Legal Lines. You have just heard from Katie Lever, an experienced gaming industry chief legal officer and general counsel. I am Andrea Bricka from Major Lindsay and Africa. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time for a new story from another woman successfully operating between the legal lines. If you have a story that you would like to share, please contact me at abricka at mlaglobal.com. Thank you. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.